Good morning. Good to see you all. Um, you know, it's a real honor to be here. <laughs> um, you got it? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Try again. So, um, before I, I begin talking about this, I want to do a really quick little survey to kind of let me know who's here. Um, so, before... Yeah, that would be great. That's going to like this. Before uh, you got the email about this retreat, or, or before you heard Amy talk, how many of you had ever even heard of Ignatius? Okay. Our history did some, some good. History classes in high school. It's good. All right. Um, how many of you had ever heard of the spiritual exercises of Ignatius? All right. Good. Good. Interested crowd. How many of you have ever actually done any Ignatian prayer exercises? Okay. And then my last question is, have any of you in here ever attended a full 30-day Ignatian retreat? <laughs> no, me either, okay? <laughs> so me not there. I can't raise my hand either. All right. Um, you know, Amy was just talking about how for the next few months uh, we're going to be doing the, the AHOP retreats will be centered around the spiritual exercises of uh, St. Ignatius. And she's done a really great job of talking about who Ignatius was and laying the background for us. Um, you know, as she mentioned, he took the group, uh, the six individuals, to walked them through the experience he had in the cave. Um, he was a, an amazing and gifted spiritual director. And, and if that, the term spiritual director is something you're not familiar with, it's basically somebody who, who walks with someone else, uh, typically one-on-one, and in order to help them grow in their relationship with Christ and grow into maturity. And so he took those experiences in the cave and his experiences in working with others and eventually wrote them down in this book called The Spiritual Exercises. That book has become one of the most influential books on, on the spiritual life that's ever been written. Now, since then, the book has been used for centuries to lead people through 30-day individual retreats as a part of their spiritual formation process. These um, retreats and the principles that were taught in Ignatius' book have also been adapted in a variety of formats and situations over the years to meet the needs of those who can't get away for 30 days for a retreat. Now, I was first introduced to the spiritual exercises through a book called 30 Days on Retreat with the Spiritual Exercises of St. Ignatius. The book is the story of one man's experience on these retreats. Okay, but here's the funny thing, all right? I would have sworn that I read this book somewhere between 1994 and the year 2000. Um, and that's kind of important because I would say that my next experience with the nation happened at a conference in the year 2000, and I'm confident of that date, okay? But when I go to Amazon to try to give you the book title and the author and all that kind of stuff, yeah, it tells me that the book wasn't published until 2003. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not quite sure what's going on there. I, I don't know if there were earlier editions of the book or maybe somehow, I don't know, via Amazon delivery yesterday, I managed to read <laughs> a book 10 years before it was actually published. I really don't know, but I'm going to, and, you know, and of course my memory could also be faulty, but I'm going to go with the story the way I remember it, okay? Which is that I started this book, I thought the idea was so fascinating and so cool, but the further I got, the more the sense of I will never 
be able to pull away for 30 days. That's never going to happen in my lifetime. And the discouragement of that sense, and especially at the time when I was home, I was reading the book when I was home with, with young children, and it was like, I can't take this. And I put it away, and I quit reading. Um, so then I went to that conference in 2001. <laughs> and they were, every morning the conference began with um, a different prayer exercise from a different tradition, different faith tradition. And, and that morning, one particular morning, the prayer exercise was an Ignatian prayer exercise. And it um, was incredibly life-changing. It, it completely rewrote my understanding of the story of Mary and Martha. But that's a different story, so we're not going to go there. But it really engendered this, this intriguing interest in these exercises and the way that God could use them. And so at that point, um, I began to do a lot of study. Um, I began to use them in my own prayer life, and I started leading people through um, Ignatian prayer exercises. So um, throughout all that time, though, there was always in the back of my mind, boy, wouldn't it be cool someday maybe to do the whole 30-day retreat? You know, I was kind of longing for that. Well, a few years ago, um, my husband gave me a book that he had learned about called Journey with Jesus, Discovering the Spiritual Exercises of St. Ignatius. Now, what this book does is it attempts to take the retreat experience and break it down into bite-sized chunks. Um, that can be completed in everyday life over, obviously, a much larger period of time. Um, now, I want to say that neither the author of that book nor I would even begin to suggest that the impact is the same doing that as going away for 30 days. Um, but it was a great place to start, and so I did. Um, I finished going through it about a year and a half ago, and I'm now going through it again. Started back over it again. I have to tell you, these exercises, they didn't like upend my life in some kind of mountaintop experience, but they did day by day, one piece of it at a time, rewrite the interior of my life in the most profound ways I've ever experienced over a period of time. So, just like the book doesn't claim to replicate the exact experience of being away on 30 days, um, this, the ace hop treat, retreats are not going to be able to replicate the experience of going through all of the exercises. However, I'm hoping that as we talk about these things over the next several months, that you'll find some things in there that are useful and that God can use in your own journey to take you a little further. Now, it's not my intent to explain the spiritual exercises today. In fact, if I were to do that, it would completely miss the point of Ignatius, because he really believed not so much in explaining Jesus as helping people experience Jesus. And, um, and, and so that, that'll be the goal as we walk through this as well. However, I do want to give you a very basic understanding of the exercises themselves so that you can kind of see where we're headed. And so I've prepared an outline. Can we get those passed out? And excuse me, um, Marty, can I have some water? Sure. Sorry. Allergies are kicking off just a little bit and <laughs> a little water will help. Okay, so there's, as they're passing them out, um, what you'll see when you get them is, um, well, and, and let, me, let me back up really quick. This outline actually comes from a website called IgnatianSpirituality.org, and they have a lot of great resources there, so if you want to explore this more, that's a good place to go. But as you get the outline, you'll notice that it begins with principles and foundations, and then it lists topics by weeks. Well, each of these weeks, excuse me, corresponds to 
one of the weeks of a 30-day retreat. So in, you know, in week one, this is what the topic would be, okay? But what I really want to draw your attention to today is the principles and foundation section. Okay, thank you, Marty, very much. Okay. This, where it says principles and foundation, the topics underneath that represents the introductory sections of the spiritual exercises. And Ignatius believed that these ideas should be well grasped before anyone even began the actual retreat. Um, and it's this section that I'm going to be talking from today. And I say talking from on purpose because I'm not going to try to hit all those topics. Um, but I'm going to pull out in particular uh, uh, one word that we're going to focus with that comes from those principles and foundations because it's really key and it's not a word that we typically use a lot um, in most Christian circles. Most Christians are not very familiar with it. And um, that term is indifference. Now, what do you think of when I say the word indifference? I'd, I'd love to hear some guesses. Where do you think he's going to go with this idea of indifference? What does this mean? It sounds like apathy. Apathy. Yeah. It's very negative. Very negative. Yes, it has very negative connotations today, doesn't it? Because of the way we think of it. It kind of makes me think of um, a story I heard in high school where the teacher said to her student, I think the problem with your generation is your ignorance and your apathy. What do you think? And her student looked back at her and said, I don't know, and I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, let me be really clear that... Indifference as a synonym for apathy is not what Ignatius meant. Okay, that's, that's not where he was coming from. So let me give you another definition. Ruth Haley Barton defines indifference in this Ignatian sense in her book, Pursuing God's Will Together Like This. In the context of spiritual discernment, indifference is a positive term signifying that I am indifferent to anything but God's will. In, let me say that again, okay? It is a positive term, not a negative, signifying that I am indifferent to anything but God's will. (coughs) In this interior freedom, a state of openness to God in which we are free from undue attachment to any particular outcome, there is a capacity to relinquish whatever might keep us from choosing God and love. And we have come to the place where we want God and God's will more than anything more than ego gratification, more than wanting to look good in the eyes of others, more than personal ownership, comfort, or advantage. You see, for Ignatius, part of the, 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 the point of the spiritual exercises was to enable a person to better discern God's will. And so this was considered a principle and foundation because um, Ignatius understood that in an inordinate desires within us can interfere with our ability to distinguish between our will and God's will. Therefore, before someone can even begin to seriously discern God's will, they have to be in a place of freedom over their own lusts and desires. This freedom is what the Apostle Paul wrote about in Philippians 4.12. And, and by the way, you're taking notes, which is great, but we do have a PowerPoint that we can send out to you later, okay? So if you would rather just listen, you can get that too, okay? Philippians 4.12, Paul wrote, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, 
whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. In expounding on Paul's ideas, Ignatius wrote that the Christian is called to be indifferent to all things and says, we ought not seek health rather than sickness, wealth rather than poverty, honor rather than dishonor, a long life rather than a short one. That's tough. (laughs) That's tough. In fact, it actually raises some really important theological questions. I mean, I, I am sure that you can all quickly come up with a variety of verses of scripture that suggest that we are to ask God for all of those things. Right? Okay. So, the point that, in, that, that Ignatius is making, and this is a really tough concept, and I, I don't, I, I, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around, but there is a difference, and if you can hang in there with that, there is a difference. Um, the point isn't to stop having desires, and it's not to stop expressing those desires to God. Indifference lies in that place when you have acknowledged your desires and you've expressed them to God, and then you surrender your desires to the will of God. Okay? It's what Jesus did in Gethsemane. He had desires, and his desire was that the cup of suffering would be taken from him. He told his father of his desires. He expressed those. But in the end, his response was, yet not my will, but yours be done. I mean, this really is the heart of indifference. It is coming to the place where you can honestly say, no matter what, I trust you. It's not an easy teaching. It's not. And in fact, before we go any further, I want to back it up a little bit and and try to get some running room to see if we can make this jump. (laughs) Okay? Because it's a big jump. All right? So let's go all the way back to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. A couple of years ago, I was at a concert, and one of the musicians there uh, talked about a book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a children's Bible storybook. I was intrigued by some of the things he said, so I bought it, and I actually read it from beginning to end, all in one sitting, and cried at multiple points at the beauty of God's love that this author captured. That book begins with a retelling of Psalms 19, 1 and 2. And and the author writes it like this. She said, God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere. That really is the heart of the gospel. God wrote, I love you. 
A few pages later, she begins to tell the story that we just read. She tells part of it like this. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. <laughs> Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. Can you, can you hear it? Can you hear that? Can you hear that in the serpent's words? What he was really saying? Underneath all the stuff up here, what was underneath his words? It was the lie that God didn't really love Eve. And he didn't really want the very best for her. Now, when I imagine that scene, I don't imagine it happening all in one moment. Because I haven't seen the serpent work that way in my life, or the lives of people I know very much. I think this story probably happened over days, or maybe even weeks or years. A little whisper here, and another there. And gradually Eve begins to wonder, does God really love me? And I think the more she wondered, the less she loved God. Maybe she never really loved God. I mean, Scripture doesn't give us any indication one way or the other. But in any case, by the time she took that fruit, the love of God was not in her. And that takes us to another passage. I think the Apostle John may have been thinking of this story when he wrote in 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now notice the parallels between verse 16 of 1 John and verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3. It says, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh. And pleasing to the eye, the lust of the eye. And also desirable for gaining wisdom, the pride of life. She took some and ate it. Now, what makes this passage in John particularly helpful is that it can serve in our lives as something of a warning light. It's a, it's a great dashboard indicator that tells me whether or not the love of God tank is empty. Okay? I mean, when the check engine light goes off in my car, okay, I could put tape over it, <laughs> you know, or I could try to fix the light somehow, but the problem is in the engine. And if I'm going to fix it, I'm going to have to fix it in the engine. All right? It's the same when the lust of the flesh indicator or the lust of the eye indicator or the pride of life indicator are going off in my life. John tells us that when these things are present in our life, the love of God is not in us. Now, this references both, I think, both love from God and love for God. Okay. So, what do these indicators look like when they start going off in our lives? Let's go back to Eve. Okay. Genesis tells, 3 tells us that when she saw the fruit of the tree was good for food. Now, we may want to spiritualize the lust of the flesh. For Eve, it was food. Okay. 
It looked good. In Psalms 106, 13 through 15, we read of the Israelites in the deserts, and the psalmist writes, They soon forgot his works. They didn't wait for his counsel, but gave in to craving in the desert and tested God in the wasteland. He gave them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. This is a, a reference to Numbers 11, where we read, The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing. If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we had in Egypt at no cost. Also, cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But we, now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Okay. So in response to their craving and complaining, God sent them quail. Gave them what they wanted. But as the psalmist points out, it came with a leanness in their souls. So the lust of the flesh is a good indicator that I'm not walking in indifference and that my love of God tank is running low or even empty. So then there's the lust of the eyes indicator. I think about that one. Genesis 3 says... That when Eve looked at the fruit, it was pleasing to the eye. <clears throat> a few years ago, I had this experience where the Lord really opened that up for me. I mean, it was, it was little and kind of silly in a way. But for me, anyway, it was the very first time when I, I got it. I got what this lust of the eye thing was. Okay? We were taking a walk in our neighborhood. And one of our neighbors had just installed this outdoor fire pit. Now, this was the days before you could buy one at Home Depot. So this thing was brick. It was built like something you'd see at a restaurant. You know? And all, all these neighbors were gathered around in their lawn chairs, up morning out to the fire. And I walked up to it, and the first thought that ran through my mind was, I want one of those. And then I heard the spirit whisper, can't you enjoy it without needing to possess it? this idea of mine mine begins when we are very small and we scream it at the top of our lungs mine (laughs) so the lust of the eyes is my second indicator that I'm not really walking in indifference and my love of God tank is running low or maybe even empty our final indicator is the pride of life Indicator. Believe Eve looked at the fruit and saw that it was desirable for wisdom. Now, I mean, doesn't that sound like a good thing to you? I mean, doesn't, doesn't Proverbs tell us to seek wisdom? And then there's the very name of the tree. I mean, the tree is named the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, isn't a good thing to know the difference between good and evil? Okay, so just first off, I don't think that Eve was looking for genuine wisdom through disobedience. I think that's probably a safe bet. I think she was looking to make herself important. I mean, the serpent had told her that this wisdom would make her like God. How many of us have managed to avoid the internal voices that urge us to make something of ourselves, to be special, And, you know, it wasn't just 
about being important. It was about how she would be important. There's this old Chinese myth that I really think sheds some light on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Once there was a farmer whose horse ran away. And the people in the village were sad for him and said, oh no, this is bad. How will you plant your crops without a horse to pull the plow? But the old farmer said, how do I know what's bad? God alone knows what's good or bad. Well, the next day, the horse returned, bringing three wild mares with him. And the people said, wow, this is great. Now you have four horses. But the farmer replied, how do I know what is good? God alone knows what's good or bad. Later, the farmer's son was attempting to tame one of these wild horses when he fell and broke his leg. The people in the village told the farmer, oh no, this is very bad. How will you harvest your crops without your son's help? But the farmer just shook his head and said, how do I know? It's bad. God alone knows what's good or bad. So the next day, an army came marching through the village, and they conscripted all the young men in the village to fight for their army in a battle at the top of the mountain. And all of the young men that they took died in battle that day, except, of course, the farmer's son with the broken leg. And when the people said, I guess it's good that your son broke his leg. The farmer replied, Only God knows. That's right. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was like the villagers. It was about reserving the right to decide and define what's good and bad. But the farmer understood that this right is God's alone. So our last indicator, the pride of life, lets me know I'm not, when I'm not walking in indifference and my love of God tank is running low or even empty. Each of these indicators, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, represent the opposite of the indifference that Ignatius talked about. And what is most important here is to recognize that they each point to a deficit of God's love at work in our lives. To the extent that we embrace the truth that God loves us and desires good for us is the extent to which indifference can operate in our lives. The level of indifference that Ignatius described is not possible through force of will. God grants indifference as we ask for it. As we ask him to make us indifferent to anything but his will. A couple of weeks ago, my heart and mind were filled with meditations on indifference, and I was getting ready because I was getting ready for this retreat, and so I've been meditating on a lot, and I got the stomach flu. And I'm going to spare you the gory details. <laughs> but that night, I had some conversations with God, and they went something like this. Oh, God, please, no, not again. Please heal me now. <laughs> and a pause. Lord, if my retching in front of this toilet brings you glory somehow, then may I retch here for the rest of my life. <laughs> Pause. Oh, no, God, 
Please, try to get me out. Pause. Okay, God. I really didn't mean that other prayer. The one about the rest of my life. But I want to. Help me mean it. I'm pretty grateful that living a night like that one for the rest of my life apparently didn't glorify God. Um, And, you know, you may even be thinking that that conversation was probably the result of a physical illness causing a bit of mental illness. Um, You know, but throughout it all, I couldn't shake the the memory of Julian of Norwich, one of the desert mothers who prayed that God would make her ill so that she could better identify with the suffering of Christ and better understand his love for her. Now, you may think that, you know, that Julian was mentally ill too. I don't know. But you can't deny that the love of God was dwelling richly in her. And her writings about the illness that she did experience have been a powerful tool for spiritual transformation for Christians for hundreds of years. And I have to confess something to you. Um, Earlier this week, Amy asked if I would mind inviting some of the teenagers to participate. And I said, yeah, that'd be fine. Um, But later, I began to have second thoughts about that. No no offense. (laughs) My thoughts about having teenagers participate made me, I began to wonder, what age is this talk really for? Like, who's it really appropriate for? Because I remembered being a young, married 20-something and being faced with a really life-altering decision. My husband, Brett, and I really wanted to know God's will. But when we talked to our pastor about it, he stunned us by asking us, what do you want to do? That question completely took us by surprise. We had not even had any conversations about that. What do you, what do you mean, what do you want to do? What we, you know, he talked about how God sometimes uses our desires as a way of leading us. And he was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. God does use our desires sometimes to lead us. And I think that before you can really surrender your desires, you have to know what they are. Clear about them. I heard somebody once say, and I'm not exactly sure that this is exactly true. I think I could pick it apart, but still, the overall concept I think is valid. A friend said, you know, you can't really surrender your identity to God until you have an identity. (laughs) And um, so getting clear about who you are, both the beautiful and the not so beautiful, and sorting through the various desires pulling at you kind of takes a little bit of life experience. So I was sharing this concern with Brett that I had about that. And he reminded me, though, he said, you know, indifference is the kind of thing that you want to have heard of when the time comes (laughs) that you need it. And so I am aware of the fact that this talk might not be for everyone in this room today. Um, And if so, you probably know that. And I am also confident that the time will come in your life when this talk will be for you. And I believe that the Lord will bring it back to your memory when that day comes. And you will remember it. He also encouraged me. He said, you know, okay, um, probably more than, than explaining indifference um, would probably help people to hear a little bit about how indifference has played a role in your own life. So um, about... I think probably one of the most profound times, as I give you a lot of stories, but the, the place where I can say I've struggled with it the most and the longest, about four years ago, I took a new job. Now, this was, 
After years of working in ministry alongside my husband and staying home with my children, I had gone back to school, and in December, just before this, um, I had, for all practical purposes, finish, finished my master's degree. The recession was still quite strong, <laughs> and it was pretty amazing that I got a job so quickly. Um, this job was prestigious. I was working for a consulting firm on a contract with the governor's office. It paid better than most of the jobs that my classmates were getting at that point, and I hated it. <laughs> I came home crying on my very first day. There was no honeymoon period. <laughs> okay? Now, my reasons for hating it are complicated. And there are more than I want to go into a lot here today. There's a few things that I'm going to share. Um, clearly, even to me then, I recognized this. Part of the reason I hated it so bad was because I was in a great deal of emotional pain. Um, that pain was related to the loss of my mother. And um, having learned of my husband's infidelity about three weeks before I took the job. And so I was clearly transferring some of that pain to the job. You know, dump it all over there and hate the job. And I, I, I understood that even at the time, but it didn't mean I could stop it. <laughs> you know? um, part of it, though, was also because I didn't understand why I was there. My decision to go to grad school was based on a vague awareness that things were not well with my pastor husband and the suspicion that I would need to support myself at some point. I had loved being involved in the ministries that we had led together, and I only left out of a sense of necessity. So now, I'm working this high-powered job with long hours, I felt a lot of anger. Sometimes I blamed my husband because of his choices, our ministry had begun to falter, and I had to go to school. And having gone to school, I now needed to work to pay back the student loan debt. And sometimes I blamed myself and suspected that God was punishing me. Instead of tr staying true to his call on my life, I had taken manners into my own hands, and now I was having to deal with the consequences of that. While at work, I did my job, and I did it well. But when I left work, I was just a bottle serving up wine, W-H-I-N-E, wine, <laughs> to everybody that came near me whether they wanted it or not. Somewhere during that period, though, I was reading the Ancient Wells book that Ahop uses, and I read for the very first time John Wesley's Covenant Prayer, and a copy of that is in the handouts I gave you. I'd like you, if you wouldn't mind, take just a second and stand up, and let's read this together, pray this prayer together right now. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. 
exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. You can be seated. So you see, John Wesley also understood indifference. As I read, let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. I discovered that while I couldn't actually say that and mean it, I wanted to be able to say it and mean it. And when I read, exalted for you or brought low for you, I realized that I was struggling with both. In marriage and ministry, I had been brought low. And this was a place where I wanted to be exalted. But in my job, I was being exalted. But I had always taken pride that I wasn't one of those (laughs) exalted kind. Again, I realized that though I didn't really want what that prayer declared, I wanted to want it. So I printed the prayer out and I taped it to my computer and every morning when I started work, I prayed the prayer. And you know what? I continued to whine and hate my job for most of the next four years. I also began looking for another job within three months of starting that one. Over and over again, I would get excited about a job I learned about and be certain that this was the job that would make me happy. And over and over again, sometimes in really strange ways, the opportunities disappeared. And every day, I asked God to help me want this prayer to be true. And gradually, he did begin to reform my heart little more than a year ago, I was asked to accept a position working directly for the governor's office, and I turned them down twice. I knew that if I accepted the job, there'd be an obligation to stay for at least a year, and I wanted out as fast as I could get out. Then, um, just before they asked me a third time, I looked at the reality in front of me which was that once again, I had been turned down for my dream job. And once again, the governor's office was asking me to work for them. I couldn't help but conclude that for whatever reason, God seemed pretty intent on keeping me where I was. So I said yes. But when I said yes, I made a personal commitment that I would, one, not look for another position anywhere for a year. Wouldn't open the job boards, wouldn't, wouldn't try to leave. And second, that I would choose to move from wanting to want to pray that Wesleyan prayer to actually praying it. So here I am today. My job will likely go away in the next year. And so I'm looking for another one. (laughs) 
Let me tell you that looking for a job will really test your indifference. But I found tremendous peace in knowing and finally being convinced after four years of praying that prayer over and over and over that God loves me and he wants good for me and it doesn't matter where I'm working. He will be with me in all things. And all I want is to be where he wants me to be. And I think I can say that for real now. So I want to close this time by asking you uh, two questions. And I want to give you a little bit of time to really think through and to meditate on these questions. To allow God to help you see past the right answer to what's really going on. In fact, before I even ask him, I think I want to stop and ask God's help for you to see what's really going on inside. Father God, I do lift up every single one of us in this room. And I ask you, Lord God, to help us move past the fears, the hesitations, into that place of, Lord God, of seeing what's really true. Jesus said, you are the truth. And so we come to you and say, reveal your truth to us in this moment, right now. So we sit here, you can have, open your eyes or close them as you think through these questions. I want to ask, to what extent have you internalized God's love for you? Uh, another way to think about this is, do you believe that God loves you? Do you really believe that God loves you? Like all the way down to the core of your being, to the molecular level? Ponder that for a minute. And now my second question is like it. Do you love God? I mean, really love God? Like all the way down to the core of your being? Down to the molecular level?
look up now. Those thoughts and reflection is in mind. I'd like us to dig a little bit deeper into what indifference might look like in our lives. Earlier I read what's been called the Ignatian antimony. And I'd like to share this paraphrase by David Fleming. He said, we should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one. For everything has the potential of calling forth in us a deeper response to our life in God. Now those are pretty lofty. And at least for me, other than in sickness-induced hazes that don't happen very often, <laughs> if, it's gonna, if indifference is going to grow in my life, it's going to have to grow in some pretty ordinary ways. So I recently followed the advice of one Ignatian spiritual director. I wrote my own antimony. Mine goes like this. I should not fix my desires on hot weather or cold weather, <laughs> a Democratic-controlled house or a Republican one, rain or drought, having my texts returned or having them ignored, for everything has the potential of calling forth in me a deeper response to my life in God. So that was mine. And remember, it's just mine. Chances are quite good. Yours won't sound anything like that at all. But I do want to give you the chance to write your own right now. There's a place on your page, the paper. What are the indicators going off in your life? Those might be some of the things that you write down right there. <clears throat> 